Hello there, my name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Back at the start of 2010, when audio angling was still a seed of an idea, and before I'd decided to invest in job-specific recording equipment, I pointed my video camera in the face of Leila Lancashire angler Mick Riley to record his recollections of an incident that had taken place 22 years earlier. It was the 6th of January 1988 along Lancashire's file coast, a time when huge jumbo cod were regularly being taken by small boats in the area, fishing just beyond the low water mark. The evening before the incident, the inshore weather forecast was given as good. The tide was a big one, and high water let around midday, making for perfect winter codding conditions. I remember this particular day very well as I was over in Southport a little further down the coast for a meeting I couldn't get out of, and was kicking myself because I thought I was missing out on a good day's fishing. But when I came out of that meeting around lunchtime, it was like stepping into another world. The wind was quite literally howling, trees were being buffeted about, and litter was being blown about the place here, there and everywhere. I remember thinking to myself how lucky I was not to have trailed the boat over to Cleveland for nothing, then thought no more about it, and headed for home. It wasn't until later when I switched the TV on for the early evening news that the tragic drama of the day started to unfold. As expected, small boats had gone out, and in particular, a party of three from the Blackpool Boat Angling Club down at South Shore. But sadly, they hadn't all made it back. The only person that did was Mick Riley. It must be hard for you, Mick, to put yourself back into the mindset of that particular trip, especially as you lost good friends that day. But let's start by going back a little further to the evening before. You're checking the weather forecast and making preparations for an early morning start. What exactly were those preparations? I rung Dougie and Ted up, well, Dougie, and he said, yeah, it was fine. So we rung, checked out Coast Guard, uh, and then we looked at paper and everybody, everybody said it was going to be a fine day, there were a few boats going out. So morning come, and then we uh, looked Coast Guard up again, and that's where he said uh, it's going to be a fine day, but just what, there's, a, there's a forecast coming in later in the afternoon, around about three or four, and I said, oh, we'll be back by then. I said, that's fair enough then, we'll just keep an eye on it. Went, met, and it was like a mill pond when we got there. There was only us going out from Squires Gate, but they were probably from your club. There were two or three boats out there as well. We're talking about a situation probably more than 20 years ago. So can you describe the kind of boats that we had back then and the safety gear being carried? Because obviously the boats were a lot different shaped, a lot smaller engines, a yeah, lot smaller Yeah, it, it was a D-John, mine was. Uh, no radio, but had flares... Life jackets, all the stuff you, sh- you should have them that time of the year. Like it's all changed now. And I can't think what uh, sort of boat doggies were. Like an open open deck one. And we followed all the regulations well, that year in that club. You know, I don't actually wear a life jacket all the time, although I carry them. I know yeah. you should do really, but... Uh, it said in, in the press cuttings that you weren't actually wearing life jackets, you weren't even carrying them, it said. Oh, I were, definite. I had four in mine, a definite. I'll, I'll be honest with you, I know Dougie wasn't wearing one. Ted were, because he, he, he floated up, but he couldn't have got him. Well, I put mine on. As soon as I put my anchor in, put my jacket on straight away. I had four jackets, about ten flares in a, in a cartridge, mm-hmm. and then they had some bigger ones. 
So just moving back a little bit, yeah. you started off from the from the south shore, you started heading up towards Cleveleys yeah. to fish. What were the conditions actually like when you set off? It was flat. Absolutely flat. Absolute flat. Well, I opened it up, mine, I went straight straight there. I think Ted and Dougie stopped at Nurk Tower, where I carried on. And like I said, there was, must have been three or, the, three or four boats out from Cleveleys Club. And you started fishing and the, the fishing was going well? Oh, it was. It was very well. I'll admit that I had a good catch. But unfortunately, I didn't get them home. Then you looked out to sea and you could see that there was something just not well, quite Well, it, it started out. to blow a little bit. You know, a little breeze started getting up. And then if you look over out at the horizon, you could see it black, like there was something happening. It started blowing up. White horses started coming. And I thought, oh, this is time to head back. Time I got my anchor up. Uh, got engine going, like quite getting really rough. By the time I got to North Pier, it was just horrendous. I thought, then I thought that we weren't going to make it. So you decided to pull your anchor up and make a run back down to South Shore. Yeah. What sort of distance are we talking there? <sighs> You're looking two or three, four mile out. Yeah. What kind of distance off were you as well? Well, I won't say we're that far out. Probably half a mile. And the conditions were worsening all the time while you were travelling? Yeah, the weather were getting worse and worse, yeah. What kind of wind strength did it get up to? And I believe, I've read things in the paper. Ten, it said it got up to about between nine and ten it got up yeah, to. Yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah. And at what point did you decide it was going to be an emergency? Did you let some flares off, I believe? I did, yeah. Well, when I got near the tower, I will not get in at North Pier. I will not get anywhere. And I thought, well, I'm not going to make it here. It's too far. You know, water were coming in. The waves were coming over. And... Uh, I thought I'll just let them go. So the, I think it was a, a taxi man saw them and the man on a, on a push bike and people on the pier saw them. Well, I, I was crying at the time. I, I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know to, to beach it, jump in and swim for it. I didn't want to... Because I just knew I was going to drown at the time. Yeah. Well, I've been in situations, nervous situations like that, where... I thought the boat's been going to go, it's mm. a long, long time ago, and you get this, well, I got this horrible feeling of, of weakness, like yeah. I didn't have yeah. any energy to do anything, no. like if I'd have fallen in the water, I couldn't have saved myself no. anyway. No. But in January, like this was, freezing cold, you would have died of hypothermia. Oh, you would have gone, you, you just drowned, tired, the waves were just going over you, that's what I was frightened of, just going into the water, I could swim, but not in that. No. You know, and then, when I saw people on promenade and on pier, this is it, I'm definitely going to go here. It was a good little boat, but it wasn't good and big enough for the conditions I were in. But touch wood, it, it saved my life, that little boat. Yeah. You know. If you had a swamp for it, though, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have made it anymore, oh, no. I think, with the cold and that. But you would have been dashed against the wall. Well, How this would is you have got out? Well, you wouldn't have got out, would you? Because I were up at the other side of Central Pier, so water was up at the beach. That's why I was going to beach it at... Uh, the tower, mm-hmm. but I thought with them big waves, and if I swung it round, I might have gone over the boat. You We're know. taking plenty of water. Yeah, oh, I, I'll be honest with you, I was, it was up, up to there, and it's going to sound funny this, but it wasn't at the time, but fish were swimming around the bottom of the boat. They, they were like, you know, some good cod. Had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were swimming, not on it, they were, they were swimming at the bottom of the boat, because I just caught them and still alive. So what kind of size were the waves that were coming in? Oh, well, one covered all the boat at one stage, went all the top of me. I thought that was going to knock me over. 
So they're all coming over the side, and I was like trying to stay at boat, another bucket, trying to wash water over. That day, my youngest son, Nate, Paul, were going to come out with me. And I think if he'd have come with me, I don't think both of us have survived because I would have been more concerned him than trying to stay at boat. So for some reason, he couldn't come. We weren't so well, I can't remember now, but he was going to come that day with me. And I'm touch wood now, I'm glad he didn't. And what was the actual sequence of events when the Coast Guard came out? Well, it came out when inflatable ones. Uh, he said, will you be all right for another few minutes? There's another one following me. But there's some lads have gone over at Squire's Gate. And I said, yeah, yeah, go and get them. It wasn't time they left me, the other one come behind me then. And they like, told me to leave my boat. So I threw anchor over. And then I jumped into their boat. And that's when they took me in then. You actually made it into the boat, did you? You didn't get end up in the water? I, well, half of me did. I was like on edge. Right. And then I fell in. And then they dragged me in, and then while well, I led it, well, I sat in boat, and I had my knee on but the petrol pipe and engine started cutting out on, on dinghy. <laughs> I thought you'd be thinking, here we go again. I thought, what's happening here? So the manager got me in, and that's when all everything was going on. Dougie's boat was there, and they got Ted in. Unfortunately, he died later in hospital. What was the feeling like when you actually got in the lifeboat? The feeling of relief? Oh, it was. Because I said to her, be honest with me now, I won't have lasted half an hour at most. That's if you hadn't been washed against war. I was frightened. Well, I was crying. I was this is it, my day's gone now. You know, I'm no chance in this. It wasn't a big boat, like, you know, you tell what a DJ on, they're only small. But it was it, it kept its kept its strength, you know. It, it kept afloat. And I believe afterwards the press gave you a bit of a hard time as well. We've seen all the headlines of the uh, the sea of death, the man who cheated death, suicide sailors. Yeah. And what was all that about? Well, we just thought we, we'd done something silly, really. We shouldn't have gone out because of weather and all that lot. And they were outside here, and. Uh, well, I, I, just, I told them, I said, it, it, we've got everything right. We, we run Coast Guard up, morning, got the paper, watched the television. Uh, like I said, there's other boats out besides us, so there weren't just us. I said, we did everything right, and as soon as it blew up, well, we started sailing back then. But like you said yourself, you would have gone out that morning if you hadn't working. I definitely would, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, so the for uh, did you get the forecast? Not that morning, because no. I knew I was working, but yeah. the previous night I looked at it and I was thinking, right, yeah. this is it, I'm going to miss this. Yeah, yeah. And looking back on the events, what would your thoughts be on anglers that skimp on safety gear, or don't wear life jackets, or don't carry I safety gear? I think stupid. And what was the actual outcome of the incident overall, looking back in terms of the rescue itself, how it went, getting the other lads out, or not getting the other lads out? Oh yeah, I, th I, think, I think the, the, the course guy did, did the... The best, because there was there was told by the, the senior lifeboat man not to go out. You only can go out on a certain uh, height, can't they? A seven or a, a, something like that. But they went out on a nine and a ten, and they said we're going because we can see it, lads, and we're going to go save them. And they were brilliant. I go and see them now, and I donate to them and that. And you got the boat back afterwards, I believe. Yeah, I. It, 
engine were blown off and all my tattle found some of my fishing tattle at uh, Southport. Southport? Yeah. Come up at Southport, some rods, reel, and a little, I've often got a little box about that big, a little red box. Used to have plasters in. And I used to put all my hooks and stuff in that and they found that at Southport. What happened to the other two boats? Were they lost? Well, there was only, there was only one other boat. Well, there was two of them in the same boat, wasn't Yeah, there were two lads in, Dougie and Ted was in the same boat. They were like only 50 yards off uh, Squire's Gate. You know Squire's Gate, don't you? I do, yeah. Well, the, the slip and the wall, well, with the tide coming in, it causes a swirl. Oh, yeah, right the, off the corner of the wall. Yeah, big swirl on waves. And they said if they'd gone a bit further up towards Southport and come in that way, yeah. they might have survived. Well, they spun it round, and with waves going all way, which way and other, it's knocked them over. And the thing, Dougie got knocked out, or he's, he has a, he had a, used to have a long stick on his engine at the front. And they think he's been steering that and that's hit him. Knocked him over. It's like I said, he didn't have a... Well, I, I was told he didn't have a life jacket on. I know Ted did. Was Ted the one that was that was got out of the water, but... He died later, yeah. Hypothermia he died of, and a heart attack, I think. He died later for six weeks, I think, when they found Dougie. Found him up at Cleveland's way, I think. So when I go to Blackpool, I always think about it. I always go into the Coast Guard, see lads, you know... Or remember me. Since recording that interview with Mick, I've managed to track down the other key player in that incident, RNLI inshore lifeboat helmsman on the day, Phil Denham. A not to be missed opportunity then to get another take on the same story. It's March 2011 now, so a little over 23 years have gone by since the rescue in question. What can you remember about this particular incident? The first thing I remember of the incident was getting a call, being paged uh, for the lifeboat crew from home. Uh, I lived in South Shore at the time, and it was an immediate uh, immediate call. Didn't, we didn't know what the job was at that stage, but uh, uh, we all make our way to the lifeboat station as quickly as possible. Um, that's what we did. Uh, on arrival, we could see that the wind had come out. Earlier in the morning, the wind had been offshore, and conditions were quite calm. But uh, at this point, the wind had come out to the northwest, uh, gale force, the seas were building. We get to the lifeboat station and find out what the incident was. At that point, we were told there was probably a number of small fishing boats in difficulties due to the, the weather conditions. After consultation with the, the station loan, the lifeboat operations manager, we decided we, we could launch it. The conditions were reaching the upper limits for our... Uh, D-class inshore lifeboats, but we decided we, we could uh, get out there and do what we could, but probably not stay out there too long because the conditions and the seas were just building all the time. From what Mick tells me, he was getting up towards high water by the time he was ready for letting off his flares. He obviously felt that he couldn't put the boat in anywhere, as the promenade is seawall all along this stretch of the coast. That presumably would also present a lot of difficulties for yourselves. Had you and the rest of the crew any worries then regarding getting the boat in and away from the rollers and backwash along the edge of the wall? The first boat, Keith Oryx, he launched in, in the first D-class lifeboat at the side of the lifeboat station then near Central Pier. And it, that was a very difficult job, getting the boats away. We had launchers in the water up to the chest holding the boats to warm the engines and then away, away the first boat went. The idea at that time was to launch one boat from 
central pier, which had just gone, and I was to take the other boat and helm that from the south shore, as we knew the, at least two of the boats, as I say, we still thought there were, there were numerous boats at this time, but two have been sighted, and red flares have been sighted from these boats in the south shore area. Uh, so I was going to head south by road, Land Rover towing the lifeboat to South Shore to launch from there. That's what we started to do, and as we got round the Manchester Square area, a red flare was sighted west of Manchester Square. We couldn't see the boat at that time because the seas were so big that it was behind the it was behind the waves. But we, we certainly saw the red flare go from that area, so we decided to launch from Manchester Square Slade. We was in touch with the first boat then by radio and the first D-class lifeboat had headed south towards South Pier because they had a report of a boat capsizing in that area and that was obviously the, the immediate assistance needed there. So he was heading south and we launched at Manchester Square Slade with difficulty again, you know, the time was against the wall. We had launchers uh, holding the boat still while we started the engine. There was a policeman who came to give us assistance, Pat, he was stood chest deep in his uniform, trying to hold the boat steady to get us away. And eventually, yeah, we, we got away, got away from the wall, headed out and headed south from there. And we came across Michael just south of South Pier in rough seas, confused seas. boat were taking quite a bit of water over the bow, over the wheelhouse. And uh, he, he obviously needed assistance. We couldn't get alongside his boat at the time, if my memory serves me right, it was because he had some kind of rod rest, not like metal rod rests, protruding slightly from the side, and we didn't want to go alongside and bring the boats together because we was in a, an inflatable D-class lifeboat. So he threw his anchor out, which gave us a little bit more stability. It held, the, uh, held his uh, metal fishing boat uh, head to sea for a while, giving us a chance to come within a metre or so of his, uh, his gunnels, and he jumped into the lifeboat. Well, he jumped into the lifeboat. Most of him came into the lifeboat, but uh, he, was soon, he was soon on board, yeah. From there, we headed uh, out to sea a little bit, just to give ourselves some sea room. We encountered a little bit of, of a problem with our engine, uh, due to, uh, as we took Michael on board, uh, it caught the fuel line, which slightly detached from its fittings, and it didn't, the engine didn't cut out, but it, it lost some of its power, so once we'd, uh, we'd found that problem, we, we soon rectified that, and then uh, headed, headed south. Progress was pretty slow because we had four on board of our 16-foot lifeboat then. We had to maintain a, a, a course south, but turning head to sea every time we had to take on a big wave. And eventually we got off Squires Gate where we knew the wall end is, and we, we could head for shore uh, onto the beach near the Sandals. Throughout this time, we were monitoring the radio and we could hear the crew of the other D-class lifeboat searching for the people from the capsized boat in the area. And as we were heading for shore, we'd heard that they'd, they'd rescued one. They'd, they'd managed to find one person from the water and we're heading to shore also. As we approached the shore, we'd be about 100 metres from shore. Just at the side of us emerged capsized capsized fishing boat it came through the back of a wave. It, it, we, we couldn't see it. it was, uh, we was on the, sat on the back of a wave heading, heading towards shore and that came through the back of a wave at the side of us. So it was 
But what was with us that day because it would have hit that we would have been in difficulties. But yeah, it popped straight through the water and went past us at the side, and it was flat out then, full power, and we, we hit the beach. What were conditions actually like then out on the water? Two fiberglass boats had obviously already found the seas to be too much, but not the inshore lifeboat. So how did your ribs handle the situation? The D-class are not actually a rib, they're, they're fully inflatable. I always tell people, having spent a lot of years in, in D-class lifeboats, I always tell people I, I can't think or know of another 16-foot boat what will take the weather that they do. You know, they're designed and built for as lifeboats and uh, fantastic vessels, you know, especially with... Uh, the, the new version, which is um, upgraded with a, a bigger engine and uh, quite a few more and chart plotters and you know quite a quite a bit of sophisticated equipment in the in the small boat. But the boats in those days were, were fantastic for the day. Yeah, we took some hours that day. You know, we we filled the boat up completely quite a few times and uh, you know just managing to. to, to to stay ahead to see that she cleared herself eventually and we, we made more progress, made more headway south. What size of waves are we talking about here? Well, they were building all the time and the closer we got inshore, there were confused seas. The seawall is actually designed to rebuff, rebound the, the seas away from it. So as the waves come in from the west, they hit the seawall, reflect and come back out. So we call the waves locally pyramid waves because you've got one coming in and one rebounding back out. So it's a really awkward, confused area of seas close and shore near the wall. So we, as soon as we'd, uh, we'd recovered Michael from his boat, we headed west to get away from these confused seas and got into the normal breaking seas, which were big, you know, to be nine, ten feet in that area and quite heavy. We couldn't have got uh, we couldn't have got back south to South Shore without taking every one of them on head to sea. You know, it, it, it wasn't a day where you could afford to let one take you beam on. It was all head to sea work. So you'd take you'd head to the west, take on a sea, and turn south, try and get as much distance south as you could before turning west and head to sea again. But yeah, the boat was fantastic. You know, uh, the, there was uh, myself and two of the lifeboat crew on board and Michael as well once we picked him up. So, yeah, all, all credit to the boat and the power of the boat. Four grown men and heavy seasons, she still got us, got us home, yeah. In the immediate aftermath of the tragedy, Mick was given a very hard time in the press. They said that he and the others pretty much got what they deserved for not heeding the Coast Guard's recommendations, which in reality was not the case, and also for not carrying the appropriate safety gear, which again was well short of the mark. What are your observations on that point? Well, he certainly didn't get a hard time from us or, or the lifeboat station or, or the RNI. You know, we're, we're here to, to, to do a job and to the best of our ability, and that's it. You know, we don't make judgment on people. Certainly, if people request advice, we'll give them advice on equipment and expertise and, and so forth. But we're not here to as judgment on people. and. As I say, we didn't we didn't uh, give him any hard time, I d and I didn't know much about that to be honest. I, I heard a little bit. He did mention that people had rung up asking him uh, questions, but I didn't know until you, you told me that he, he had people outside his door. I've got scanned copies of all mixed press cuttings back home. Headlines like suicide sailors and the like. A very clear case of the press not having researched the subject material properly. 
or perhaps a real-life example of the old hack saying of never let the truth get in the way of a good story. But I don't think it was quite like that, was it? No, not, not to my knowledge. At the time, I think Michael mentioned that they'd been told it was safe to go out in the morning, and I don't know who from, but... And to look at the sea conditions in that, on that morning, it, it was quite nice. It was a light offshore breeze, no strong winds, and obviously from the east it, it, it's a calm sea, close inshore. But uh, the way the wind came out, it happens from time to time, but it's very unusual for the wind to come out from east to west and then northwest, and then from, uh, from light breeze start blowing a severe 10, 9 and 10. It's very, very unusual, but it happens. Having said that, uh, I, I don't know the full situation, whether they up-anchored and he headed for home right away, I don't know. But certainly that's what I would have done if the wind had come out that strong. Using this particular incident as an example of what can happen, have you any advice you could direct towards small boat anglers to help them either avoid or get themselves out of a similar situation should one ever arise again? If you're going to sea, don't just get a, a forecast, get a weather report as well. A weather report is usually what the weather's doing at that moment in time, and then you can ask them what is the forecast. So you, you get a good idea of what's happening at that time and what's going to happen, what's going to develop. Obviously, that's the weather side of things, you want, not just the, the, the wind direction and, and strength. You want to know the sea conditions, and sea conditions can change in different areas, so you know the area you're going to, or fishing round and about. And then the basic uh, safety advice of equipment, you know, tell people where you're going, when you're going to be coming back, what you're going to be doing, and have all the safety equipment on board, you know, VHF radio, flares, live jackets. In the case of the club I belong to, and very likely most other small boat fishing clubs these days, we must have our safety gear sea checked by the RNLI and made compliant every year, which is a service, as I understand it, that's open to individuals as well as organisations. Well, it's, it's great, you know, I mean, I think, uh, well, I'm pretty sure sea checks, RNLI sea checks are free, so, you know, why not? I mean, if it's going to make your craft and you safer, it's a good thing, yeah. And Mick still drops in then occasionally to say hello and catch up on old times. Yep, I saw him be over a year ago now, I think. We was on on exercise and he walked in the boathouse, said hello. He didn't recognise me at first and I didn't recognise him at first, but uh, yeah, we, we soon knew who, who each other was, yeah. A bond for life. Yep, and, and uh, I mentioned it to Mick at the time, last time I saw him. Uh, we're talking about 23 years ago now and we're both, I think... My son at the time was about five or six, and so was Mix. And um, after the incident, the boat club had a bit of a bit of a night out and invited uh, the lifeboat crews who were involved down for a drink and a bit of a social evening. We had a good talk. It was a, it was a, a good evening. Mick's young son had, had gave me a little little toy model that was one of his prized possessions and gave it me to say thanks for rescuing his dad. And when I went home, I gave it to my my son. And we're talking 23 years ago or so now, and uh, my son still keeps it. He's still got it and somewhere on his... Uh, uh, I, think, I think it was on a, a, what's it, a, a light pole in the bedroom for years and years, a little little toy, yeah. Yeah, so it's strange, but, uh, you know, you see that and it, it makes you remember things from time to time. Yeah. yeah. So there you have it then. Two different slants on the same story, straight from the horse's mouth. Hopefully this will reinforce the need to invest in and update personal boat safety equipment. Remember, there are no pockets in shrouds. <laughs>